Jay from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. Hey, Darren. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing... We're doing a bonus episode, fella. We're doing a bonus episode, and I'm I'm really excited about this one. This is... We're, we're talking to somebody uh, that I've interviewed before from the world of comic books, uh, and he's he's a big name in comic books. It's uh, Mr. Stephen Bissett, who you know from Swamp Thing with Alan Moore and 1963. He worked on Taboo and Tyrant. For the last 15 years, he's taught at the Center of Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont, and he just retired in the last year. And now he's uh, working as a writer doing books for Midnight Movie Monographs. Did I get all that right, Steve? Yeah, among others. <laughs> the reason we have Steve on uh, today is because he is one of the people who drew the comic book adaptation of 1941 for Heavy Metal. And back in 1979, it was sort of a, a pre-home video era, so the comic book adaptations of the big blockbuster movies were still kind of a big thing, right, Steve? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I'll, I'll quiz you on something. Uh, here's a trivia question. What was the first graphic novel to make it onto a New York Times bestseller list? Ooh. And my hint is it's not 1941, an illustrated story. Hmm. The first. I want to say the the adaptation of Alien. That You got uh, it. You win. Yes. Damn, Trumbull. Nice. You win. I can keep my my comic book uh, mojo. <laughs> yeah. So that meant we had a tall act to follow, right? Uh, we were the second uh, movie-based um, graphic novel that was coming out of heavy metal. And uh-huh. the one right before was Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson's best-selling Alien, the illustrated story. So uh, that was a tall act to follow. So that was that was like heavy metal's first foray into doing a movie adaptation, right? Uh, Alien was, yes, yes. Okay. okay. Although, don't forget, uh, they had also serialized in um, Heavy Metal the magazine. Although I think it was after Alien. Yeah, it was after Alien. They also serialized Jim Steranko's uh, Outland adaptation, the Sean Connery Miners in Space, Miners as in M I N E R S. Right, uh, uh, feature film. Uh, Peter Hyams was the writer director of that, so I guess that was Outland would have been their third, but they never put it down in book form. Yeah, I don't know why there's never been like an American collected edition of that because I've seen some of the pages of it and it's, and it's spectacular looking. Oh, it was gorgeous, and they did run the complete um, serialization in Heavy Metal magazine, so th- all the work was done. I have no idea why it didn't. You know, maybe. Uh, maybe the film just wasn't uh, pre-sold sufficiently to score a bookstore publication and distribution at that time. Who knows? Who knows? But, I mean, so you you worked on the adaptation, the comic book adaptation in 1941 with your Hubert School classmate, Rick Veach. And uh, Alan Asherman is also credited on the adaptation. So how did that... Uh... How did that break down? 
Okay, um, and then we can back up and talk about how it started. Alan oh, Asherman. Yeah. Alan Asherman was um, uh, commissioned by uh, Heavy Metal to do the script that Rick Veach and I were to be working from, and we actually met Alan uh, Asherman up at the um, uh, Heavy Metal offices uh, early in the project. I. I um, I had met Alan Asherman before, probably up at the D.C. offices. Uh, mm -hmm. My memory, and I could be wrong on this, my memory is that Alan uh, Asherman was in charge of the archival department at D.C. And he also, you know, was an assistant editor on some of the comics that D.C. was publishing in the 70s. And I remember reading text pages by Alan Asherman in uh, D.C. comics as well. But... Um, uh, but yeah, Alan was originally supposed to script the book. For whatever reason, uh, we stopped getting script pages at some point, and I would say the last probably third or more of the graphic novel adaptation was Rick Beach. Um, we were working directly from the screenplay, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Rick was doing uh, the lettering right on the boards as he was doing the adaptation work. Um, and again, I, I don't know what, I don't ever remember being told uh, that there was a problem or why we weren't getting script pages, but I do remember Rick. Um, Rick ended up doing at least the last third, if not more, of, the, uh, uh, of what was published um, as writers. So um, anyway, yeah, originally we started with Alan Ashman. It was such a bizarre project, I have to tell you. It was such a bizarre project. Th that sounds very on brand for the movie 1941. Oh boy. Uh, I think it was also a matter of um, knowing that heavy metal was sure how it should or would be done. Uh, and we were also dealing with some very bizarre studio politics. Mm -hmm. um, 1941 was one of the first uh, big budget feature films that at that time that was a cooperative venture between two major studios. And mm. um, we were suddenly privy to these weird levels of near espionage <laughs> revolving around the project. We were contracted to do an adaptation of the film. Uh, we were told, Rick and I, to travel into New York City uh, from where we lived in Vermont. Uh, we were in Grafton, Vermont. And we were told to come in and um, uh, we were to have a meeting with a representative from, I don't recall if it was Columbia or Universal or some guy that was repping both of them. Mm -hmm. He was uh, in a very expensive suit. Um, he was very um, snobby. Uh, clearly, we were beneath his pay scale. And he expected that we were going to sit in a room in the heavy metal office and look at a set of slides he had brought that were, um, you know, officially sanctioned studio photos of the characters and the actors in their makeup and costumes. And that we would sit there and do all the sketches we would need to then go and work for the next two and a half, three months on finishing the entire painted graphic novel. It was crazy. He did not trust. I remember saying, well, can't we just take this stuff home with us? And he was like, sure. You two guys will be down the street selling this material to Time magazine, <laughs> all right? 
So they expected us to do this adaptation working from no visual reference that we were allowed to bring home with us. And I also recall that um, uh, our point person, by the way, at Heavy Metal was the art director at Heavy Metal, John Workman. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll tell you a bit about John Workman if you're curious. And it was John Workman who talked this, John immediately understood how completely impossible this expectation was on the studio's part. Yeah. Talked the guy into going to lunch and said, okay, we'll, we'll set up Steve and Rick with the slides. And as soon as the guy left the building, John rushed the slides into the stat camera room and they prepared a set of black and white photo stats, the best they could get off 35 millimeter slides um, for us to take home with us. Because John Workman knew there was no way on earth we could complete this graphic novel without the visual reference, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the characters and the uh, the material from the film. <laughs> I, John Workman also had to steal for us and photocopy for us a copy of the shooting script. Wow. And again, it was this high security, top secret clearance thing. Um, and clearly we needed the script to yeah. do our job as did Alan Asherman. And um, it was very fortuitous that John Workman had foreseen that because when the script pages stopped showing up on time, um, ha our having a copy of the shooting script is all that allowed us to finish the project. Oh, wow. Man. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I guess it does make sense because, I mean, this is like Steven Spielberg's third film, like coming off the huge success of Close Encounters and Jaws. So, like, I would, yeah, this this film would have, like, a be at, like, the highest of priority and the highest of, Security. Sure, but it also shows how little they understood what cartoonists do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> I mean, you, all... you you guys are contractors on the project, exactly, exactly. To do official license material, and they think that you are going to sell the reference photos <laughs> to Time Magazine. That is insane. Hey, you know, we clearly we look like hillbillies, so <laughs> can't trust hillbillies, can you? <laughs> <laughs> he, he just he just walked in. He was like, I don't know. These guys look kind of shifty. Yeah, can't trust those mountain folk. Um, and now I understand that you guys were not going to be the original people on it. They originally wanted Alex Toth, who's like a big time, famous, revered comics artist. Uh, yeah, we were told um, by John Workman um, that it. Alex Toth was who they originally had in mind. I think I got that actually before uh, Rick and I were asked to take it on. Um, mm -hmm. I was already working for Heavy Metal. I had begun. Um, I had begun going into New York City with my portfolio during my first year at the Kubert School. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't know if I could afford coming back for a second year and being from Vermont and living at that time in Dover, New Jersey to go to the school. Uh, I thought that that first year, 1976 to 77 might be my only proximity to New York city. And I went up to the heavy metal office within the first, I think month to two months that the magazine existed. Um, and I was one of the first Americans to sell new material to the magazine. Um, John Workman was the art director when I first went up and John Workman was still the only guy at the heavy metal offices the last time I ever went up to those offices. So, 
John was really our, our bedrock, our anchor. And he was, he was just terrific. I mean, he's a, he's a gentle, soft-spoken, very professional, um, uh, man. He's a terrific cartoonist and he knows pop culture like nobody's business. And, um, so I think I heard about the film and I think I heard about the possibility of the graphic novel. And I think John Workman mentioned to me, Alex Toth was going to be doing it, uh, with my, you know, in and out of going up to the heavy metal offices with work. Um, and it's probably, oh God, uh, late 1978, uh, that John Workman first began, um, mentioning that this project was, was possibly going to happen. And it was, uh, I, we used to bring in a lot of sample work up to John. We never knew what heavy metal would buy. It was mm -hmm. a very because it's an very, anthology. Well, no, no, anthologies were easy, right? We mm -hmm. uh, we we were young cartoonists. The only work we could land was with anthologies. What was weird was we couldn't figure out what heavy metal wanted. Uh, in fact, I remember one day uh, in the shared house after we graduated from the Cubert School in the spring of '78, uh, Rick Veach, myself, John Tottleben, and Tom Yates all went in together, and we rented. Uh, uh, a house near to Dover, New Jersey. And that's where we were living at the time. And I remember once um, sitting down with John, Rick, and Tom, and we spread out uh, what work we had brought up to heavy metal that they didn't buy. And we made a little separate area on the living room floor of the little bit of work that John Workman did buy. And we realized that Heavy metal only bought material that made no fucking sense whatsoever. <laughs> Anything that had a linear narrative or was coherent as a story, they did not buy. It was the crazy, you know, poetic, uh, bizarre, nonlinear, at times abstract work that they would buy. Um, and uh, that was kind of a gestalt. That was a breakthrough. So from that point on, we only brought, you know, our craziest stuff up. And I'm telling you all this because Rick Beach and I jammed uh, entirely on spec on a big uh, double page spread airbrush painting uh, of sea monkeys. And the, what we did is we kind of did a vision of what, when we were kids, we thought we were going to get when we mail ordered the sea monkeys as opposed to what we really got. And it was this pretty glorious double-page color science fiction piece with these giant uh, flippered sea monkeys. Um, if any of your listeners are interested in seeing that spread, it was the last page of the story in Epic Illustrated number two that Rick Beach and I sold to Archie Goodwin at Epic Illustrated. But that piece, John Workman loved that piece, and that's what got us the 1941 job. Um, was and and that's what John remembered. He remembered that Rick and I had jammed on that piece. He knew we could work together. And Rick Veach's airbrush work uh, was very cutting edge at the time. There were very few American airbrush artists working in comics. Obviously, Richard Corbin was the pioneer of the form, and there was an Australian artist named Pete Ledger who was living and working in the New York area at the time. And Rick was pretty much the third airbrush guy. Uh, in comics at that time. And that's what got us the, the gig, was that double page, that spread that we had done with these uh, oceanic sea monkeys 
underwater. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, if, if anybody doesn't remember the old sea monkey ads, they were, they were like this ubiquitous ad in old comic books. And they were like, they were just like what brine shrimp. They were brine shrimp. Yeah. They looked like little metal shavings flexing in water. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember those. Um, (laughs) They were one of the great economic lessons that young people learned in the (laughs) fifties, sixties and seventies. You'd order sea monkeys and you'd get brine shrimp. You'd order x-ray specs out of comics and it would be chicken feathers between two pieces of cellophane in a, in a little glass, you know, (laughs) mock cardboard set of glasses. Anyway. Um, So, and, and you were, you were like young guys when you got this job, you were, like you said, just out of school. So you were like young guys in your twenties somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Rick's older than me. I was, uh, I turned 24 in March of 1979. So, you know, uh, yeah. We were young guys. Rick was in his late twenties. Rick was more mature. Rick is still more mature than me. He always will be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Rick already had a wife and a son, and uh, uh, was was shuttling between two homes: one up in Westminster, Vermont, at the time, um, and one in Dover, New Jersey, that he shared with John and John Tolliban, Tom Yates, and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living full time in Dover uh, in this shared house. Uh, and it re- actually, I was wrong. I didn't move up to Grafton, Vermont until we had the 1941 job. In fact, it was determined that the move was necessary for Rick and I to be able to work in relative isolation uh, in uh, in Vermont. So I see. Yeah, because I mean, because most movie adaptations, they're done on a very tight deadline because they have to be out before the movie. Well, and we had grown up with movie comics. I mean, the movie, mm-hmm. part of the reason I'm sure that Alex Toth came to mind is Alex Toth had drawn some of the movie comics that were done in the late 50s, early 60s. In fact, Alex Toth worked on the movie, the Dell movie comic of Irwin Allen's The Lost World from 1960. Um, and of course, it, for those comic fans out there, I mean, Alex Toth did some terrific work for Dell Comics uh, doing um, Zorro. Uh, when Zorro was one of the features on um, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, right? Uh, on you know one of the Walt Disney productions uh, with um, uh, Guy Williams. Guy Williams was Zorro, and Toth did some terrific you know Zorro comics for Dell. So Toth, you know, had done a fair amount of work like that. And yeah, those comics used to come out. I mean, d- when Dell was publishing the movie comics in partnership with Western publishing uh, all through the fifties and into the early sixties, uh, you know, they were putting out what two to five movie comics a month. So they clearly had a very, um, uh, a very streamlined production and uh, uh, scripting artwork, delivering the work, et cetera, schedule to keep those movie comics cranking out. And they were done well in advance. I've got a number of movie press books, the, the way movies used to be sold uh, to theaters. Uh, a theater owner would get a press book for a film they were going to be showing, um, and it would have all the ads and all the uh, advertising copy and fake newspaper articles that they could send to local papers to promote the film. And some of those press books promote the movie comics. So that means the movie comics were probably done six months or more in advance of, 
the films even, you know, being distributed to, to theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And uh, we didn't have that kind of lead time. <laughs> <laughs> we basically had the summer of 1979 to get this fully painted 64-page graphic novel done and out. That's that's nuts. I mean, even for two people, that's that's a huge workload. And I mean, I think most people, they probably assume, oh, it's it's got to be easy. You're just basically copying the movie. But no, you're doing this while the movie is being shot. Right. We, we're working, for, as was the case with the Dell movie comics, we're working from a shooting script. We're, no, we're never going to see any footage from the film that we're doing an adaptation of. And as I mentioned earlier, we actually had to steal the reference materials necessary to doing this this adaptation of this movie. Um, and there's a lot of artifacts in the history of movie comics to show that. Um, I'm a huge fan of of the late great Sam Glansman, and he did the movie comic for Dell of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the Irwin Allen feature film that uh-huh. later became a TV show. And there's a giant sea monster at the end of that comic that looks completely ridiculous. It's like a lizard-headed sea cucumber or something. Um, and I always wondered where that came from, because in the movie, it's just a giant octopus that appears at the end of the film to threaten the atomic submarine, the Sea View. And I just, last year, bought this giant hardcover, gorgeous book from Creature Features uh, about the life and career of Irwin Allen, uh, full-color illustrations. And there in the section on Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea is that ridiculous lizard-headed sea cucumber uh, that was originally supposed to be in the film. So, ah. you know, that that that's the kind of evidence, if you look back at some of the movie comics, of um, how different the scripts would be that the cartoonists and the writers were working from uh, to create the movie comic well before the film existed. Right, right. Did you did you have to gather a whole lot of reference um, outside of what you stole from the movie people? Like yeah, we you people? know here's here's the scoop that uh, doing 1941 an illustrated story uh, we had to think on our feet. So mm-hmm. not only did we have to steal the reference material we were supposed to be working from. Uh, we were also told, we, we did the sample pages at the beginning of the graphic novel, that whole opening uh, four-page sequence mm-hmm. that uh, begins with um, uh, the car driving and the woman getting out of the car and taking off her polar bear club robe mm-hmm. and diving into the water. And we did our little riff on Jaws. We didn't know they were going to do that in the movie. Um, it, right. that turned out to be a good piece of timing. Right up to the page where she is perched on the periscope of the submarine. And the second panel of that, that page where she's perched up on the periscope, uh, we can see the Japanese submarine commander, and we drew it from an image of Toshiro Mifune. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the reasons we were looking forward to doing the comic is I am a huge movie buff and movie fan. And I was looking forward to, we get to draw Toshiro Mifune, you know, one of the great actors of international cinema, and Christopher Lee, who's playing the German uh, U-boat, what, consultant on the Japanese sub. Well, we turned in those four pages, that cinch that we were getting the job, but we were also told by John Workman, oh, fellas, there's a clause in Toshiro Mifune's contract 
that his likeness cannot be drawn or painted. Okay? Really? We could not use Toshiro Mifune's likeness in the movie adaptation of a movie in which he is playing the most prominent Japanese character in the entire story. <laughs> so that is why we decided, well, okay, we've read the screenplay by this point. By the way, the screenplay was very funny. You know, the screenplay was... Oh, that, la- well, that's good. <laughs> the, the screenplay was laugh out loud funny, which both Rick and I were quite surprised at. You know, we had no idea what we were in for. We just knew it was a new, new Spielberg film and that we would be stupid to say no. But once we got the script, it was actually very, very funny. But we can't draw Mifune. So both Rick and I went, well, this whole movie is a lampoon of American propaganda, of American war hysteria leading up to our entry into World War II and our first year in World War II. And um, we're not allowed to draw Mifune. So why don't we make all the Japanese submarine characters look like those horrible, racist, xenophobic Warner Brother cartoon uh, characters from the World War II uh, propaganda cartoons, Bugs Bunny, mm. you know, bu- Bugs Nips the Nip. I mean, that was one of the titles of a Warner Brothers cartoon. Um, that stuff is pretty sensitive these days, but Rick Veach and I, growing up as children of the 50s and the early 60s, those cartoons were shown on television when we were kids. Right. Okay. I remember there was, there was even that Dick Tracy cartoon that had, uh, uh, what there, there was some uh, Japanese caricature. Yeah. And there was character. Popeye, the Popeye cartoons that were yeah. shown on television, not the old Fleischer brothers, but the famous studio ones that were done in the early forties. I mean, we, those cartoons were on TV when we were kids, that kind of, uh, racist imagery in animated cartoons had not been, um, considered problematic until probably the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. So we decided, okay, uh, we thought it would be keeping with the tenor of the script and the thrust of 1941 that we, um, satirize that form of propaganda, that kind of racist imagery that was so central to all the world war II propaganda, not only in America, but also, uh, in England, And if you know your manga history at all, in manga in Japan, they were doing the same sort of thing, caricaturing FDR, Churchill, right? That kind of Mm. portray your enemy as a demonic or subhuman uh, being is a typical device that uh, cartooning in particular um, is employed for during times of war. So we decide, okay, if we're going to do that, then we need reference because we're not getting it from <laughs> Columbia and Universal. So what Rick and I did is um, before we started work on the project, we went to this used uh, bookshop and um, antique shop in, I believe it was in Morristown, New Jersey, downtown Morristown. Mm-hmm. And we bought the entire year of 1941 of Life magazine, all of them. Oh, wow. That's okay. smart. And this is when you could get them for like a dollar a magazine or 50 cents a magazine. If we were, since we were buying a whole year, we got quite a good bargain. And that particular, you know, antique dealer or bookseller was very happy to see the whole year of Life magazines leave their store. 
And the reason we glommed onto those wasn't just for the photo reference, cars, costumes, um, uh, and so on. But we also knew that all the advertising art in the Life magazines would be primo material to work with. And by this time, Rick and I had pretty much settled on, okay, if we're not allowed to draw some of the key characters that, that as they appear in the film, let's take the Harvey Kurtzman, Will Elder, mad comic book approach to this whole project. And having the entire 1941 year of Life magazines gave us all the collage material we needed. <laughs> um, wow. And that's why we did the graphic novel in the style we did, right? Part of it was a time constraint. How are we possibly, even with two of us, how are we possibly going to complete a 64-page full-color graphic novel adaptation of this film? Um, and I had been using a lot of photo collage techniques in the comic book work I had been doing, uh, particularly for some of the better printed um, uh, comic books I had done work for. I had done already done a few stories for um, Scholastic magazines. Uh, Bob Stein was my editor, better known to you all as R.L. Stein. He mm. created the Goosebumps series um, some years after I got to work with him. And I had already uh, uh, sort of perfected a technique with my black and white painted comics that I was doing for uh, Scholastic. Um to incorporate photographs. And Rick Veach was doing the same sort of thing. If you look at Rick's uh, full color work in Epic Illustrated uh, in the early 80s, you'll see that Rick was doing that as well. And mm -hmm. we, we would incorporate like metallic textures or organic textures or use micro photography images to create abstract forms that could evoke, you know, um, inner or outer space or what have you. Um, so, that was our key reference, was that stack of Life magazines, and we cut them to pieces. And um, we used them as characters throughout um, the 1941. And one of the things that I pitched to Rick <laughs> was, uh, I really loved uh, Gyro Gearloose, the- mm -hmm. um, uh, Oh yeah, DuckTales, right? Uh, well, right, before DuckTales, Gyro Gearloose was one of the characters that Carl Barks had created in the 1950s in Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck comics, he eventually did end up on DuckTales, Darren, where you <laughs> recognize him from. Right, in it. the comic books, uh, in, in the comic books, um, he had a little assistant who never spoke. It was a little stick figure, like robot, who had a light bulb for a head. And he uh, would appear throughout the Gyro Gearloose stories and he would have kind of his own side adventure going on in the story, right? Let's mm -hmm. say Gyro Gearloose is working on some invention that involves flying, and he's got a pigeon or something in the lab. His little assistant would end up having some sort of little misadventure involving the pigeon, and that entire narrative was presented as a second narrative in the background and foreground of each panel. It would just be part of what was going on in the comic. So once we had the uh, Issues of Life magazine, we spotted, uh, there were a lot of Mr. Peanut ads. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I said, why don't we use Mr. Peanut like, you know, Gyro Gearloose's assistant? I, and, I'm looking at Mr. Peanut right now on the, the page where uh, Wally gets 
like he falls into the, the and he has the huge pile of shit dumped on him. There you go. Follow yeah. Mr. Peanut. Mr. Peanut has a whole adventure uh, until Mr. Peanut gets crushed under a tank tread and turned to peanut butter. Oh, <laughs> but he he appears through the whole graphic novel until that point when he pays the ultimate price. So like at um, least once a page, he's he's popping. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah. He's in there. Um, and you'll also see, you know, we use the the uh, the uh, Pegasus uh, image uh, from one of the major uh, gas companies, Mobile. Um, uh -huh. You know, we used all those advertising characters. And at this time, you know, 1979, America was not quite the litigious corporate culture that it is in the 21st century. Uh, nobody had any problem with our doing this. You know, you would right. think that we would have brought in the first batch of pages and John Workman and the National Lampoon Heavy Metal Legal Department would have had a shift fit. No, everybody dug it. They thought this was a great idea. <laughs> um, and, you know, we use a lot of likenesses. There's one page in here where Kate Smith appears, and Kate Smith was very famous personality during the war years in America. She was one of the, uh, you know, the Patriot Building singers on radio and so on. Kate Smith singing God Bless America. So, She's in there, built mm -hmm. like a brick shed house, as she always was. Um, and um, uh, so that was our reference to answer your question. Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is something else. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the, the photo montage approach you took. And like a thing I find really interesting is you, you took a real underground comics kind of sensibility to doing this. It's, it's even more over the top than the movie is. Yeah, I mean, part of it was out of desperation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, part of it was very much in keeping with uh, the kind of work that Rick Veach had been doing up to this point in time. Rick did two, two or three terrific um, underground comic stories uh, that adopted entirely the Harvey Kurtzman, Will Elder, mad approach to doing satirical comics. Rick did a classic story called Nut Peas, which was his Vietnam-era riff on Charles Schultz's Peanuts. <laughs> and it's still a hilarious comic. Um, Rick also did um, another uh, story in that style that was, uh, uh, it was called Mama's Bois, B-W-A-H, which was a constant joke in mad comics back in the 50s. That instead mm. of saying boy, you say bois. You know, it's sort of a, a, a knockoff from Yiddish and, and vaudeville humor. And Mama's Bois was about the bazooka bubblegum kids decide to pull a Halloween prank on Ed Gein, the <laughs> notorious serial killer uh, of Wisconsin. And they put a burning bag of shit on the front porch of Ed Gein's home. And Ed Gein, dressed in his mother's skin, exacts horrific revenge upon the bazooka bubblegum kids. <laughs> so this is the kind of stuff Rick had been doing. And he's a, <laughs> and he's, he's a master at it. Uh, Rick is one of the greatest American cartoonists of our generation. And part of that skill set that he rarely gets appreciated for is his ability to not just mimic, but to actually absorb on a, on a cellular level, <laughs> the, the style and the perspective of certain cartoonists and put it down on the page. And Kurtzman and Elder's Mad Comics were such a formative influence on Rick um, and, and on all of us in our generation uh, that 
uh, you know, it just made sense for us, given what Rick had already done with stories like Nut Peas and Mama's Bois, and given the fact that here we were, the biggest job of our careers, and we had not only been handcuffed, but hamstrung by not, you know, by being denied what we would need to do the job. So doing it as a parody, as an underground comic style parody, made perfect sense to us. And John Workman totally agreed with it. In fact, John was delighted with uh, the work that we did. Anytime we brought pages up, part of the fun was watching John Workman chuckle over the pages as he looked at him for the first time. He was our best audience. That's cool. That's very cool. And and you had like some fun with in-jokes. I, I spotted like both Popeye and Wimpy in there. And I think there's oh, yeah. yellow kids in there at one point. They're all in there. Yeah, we... we <laughs> We put every kind of in-joke in there that we could think of. <laughs> um, it Again, it seems suitable. You know, we've got the uh, uh, inventions of Professor Lucifer Butts, How to Awaken a Would-Be Rapist. And it's basically, um, you know, uh, in the classic style of the old comic strips with the inventions um, uh, that that uh, we also incorporated work by cartoonists that a lot of people weren't aware of at the time, like unless you were a diehard fan of someone like Art Boris Artsy Bashev, um, you wouldn't recognize that we actually incorporate some of our Boris Artsy Bashev's World War II iconography into some of the pages and panels. Um, and, you know, we sneak in a lot of movie references for obvious reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also some Saturday Night Live references in here because we were all fans of Saturday Night Live. We definitely, you know, were the generation that was uh, <laughs> that was blown away with what was happening after hours on NBC late at night on the weekends. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was the hip show of the time. Yeah, I still remember the first night I ever saw Saturday Night Live. It was before going to Cubert School. I was at Johnson State College in a little town, Johnson, Vermont. I, I did two years of college there. I was visiting a friend. They had the TV set on in their apartment. We were getting very stoned. And um, there was somebody on the television imitating Tony Orlando and Dawn if they had six-inch spikes driven into their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll stop there. You don't need me repeating. That's uh, Michael O'Donohue, right? Michael O'Donohue. Yeah. We were also, of course, huge fans of National Lampoon. I'd been buying National Lampoon since its second issue off the newsstand. Um, so we also thought it made sense for us to take the approach we did because we saw ourselves as in the continuity of National Lampoon uh, right. more than heavy metal, actually. So yeah, I, I can see that, sure. You know, so the continuity in our mind was Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder at Mad Comics, the Underground Comics. National Lampoon, because National Lampoon lifted a lot from the underground comic movement, which, by the way, Rick Beach uh, was part of. He did his first published comic work in comic book form was Two-Fisted Zombies, published by Last Gas Publications during the underground comics era. And then Saturday Night Live follows National Lampoon. And that's why we saw ourselves as part of that continuity up to 1941, The Illustrated Story. It made perfect sense to us. Yeah, yeah. I just spotted the Gerber baby on one of your pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Gerber baby's in there. Frederick March as Mr. Hyde from Dr. <laughs> Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is in here. Um, yeah, we really went to town. And, of course, we were delighted that we could include not just Dumbo, but, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the scene in the movie theater 
you know, there's Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne, Danny Kaye, Betty Davis. We've got Salvador Dali saying meh. Um, we sneak in Peter Lorre in his uh, Casablanca role. Uh, there's Errol Flynn with a World War II helmet on. And there's Walt Disney over in the corner being strangled by Boris Karloff. <laughs> I just, as, I just spotted Bert Lahr as the Cowardly Lion, too. Exactly, exactly. There's uh, Nantan Moreland, and up at the top above the screen is Laurel and Hardy right. with Laurel saying, but what about Laughing Gravy, which was our favorite Laurel and Hardy short, Laughing Gravy, the one where they have a, they're trying to hide a goat from their landlord, a goat named Laughing Gravy. Uh, yeah, it's all in here. Um, yeah. Elsie the Cow from the Borden ads, Will Eisner's The Spirit, you know, yeah. we, we went to town. You even have the bat signal <laughs> oh, yeah. on that page yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, and it was really, it was a lot of fun, in part because we didn't have to worry about all those legal obstacles that now exist for cartoonists. Um, we maybe could have gotten away with it with one appearance in a panel of, say, you know, Elsie the Cow from Borden, but she appears repeatedly in here, and that would be, you know, that would be litigious material in Dear... 2021 right right and of course um, mr peanut they probably would take us to court just for that so probably of course. <laughs> probably of course had you guys seen uh animal house by that point i'm assuming oh god yeah yeah uh -huh. animal house i'd have to look at what year what month animal house came out that was 1978 wasn't it yes it was 78 i'd have to double check the month myself Do you yeah know so so we had seen um, Animal House when it opened at one of the local New Jersey theaters. I remember we couldn't see it in Parsippany. We had to drive a little further from Dover. Um, and we went with uh, one of our Cubert School classmates, Ron Zalmi. Um, and Ron is still very much alive and with us all. Ron, Ron ended up working um, at Heavy... Uh, at I'm sorry, at Marvel Comics in the production department. He also did a lot of... Um, uh, cartooning work for many, many uh, magazines and freelance clients. And uh, we, so we saw Animal House the very weekend it came out. And, um, you know, it was revelatory when it came out. I mean, there had mm -hmm. never been a film like that that we'd seen in a theater. And I'm talking, I'm saying that as somebody who had seen Kentucky Fried Movie when it first came out. <laughs> animal House was a completely different animal. It didn't even fit into you know, any expectation one might have of, of, you know, what would John Landis do? Um, and also, you know, it was surprising that a National Lampoon movie would be that consistent with the aesthetic of National Lampoon magazine and as funny as the magazine. Yeah. Um, so those were the hopes we had for 1941, John and Darren. <laughs> All right. Holy moly. <laughs> But we were sadly mistaken, as it turned out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't quite live up to those expectations. And but you can kind of when you look at it in the context of the time, you can kind of see why everybody was expecting this to be the next big thing. Well, it was a victim of high expectations. You know, yeah. this was at a time where uh, it's interesting. Having grown up, uh, I was born in 1955, so the media environment was so different that we grew up with. And really it wasn't until um, the, the way that Jaws hit in 1975, there was no expectation of Jaws. In mm -hmm. fact, Universal opened that film so wide because they were nervous 
whether it would find an audience or not. And once it opened up that wide, of course, it instantly found an audience and there were lines around the block. And it took another two years before another big budget film that the its parent studio feared was going to tank, Star Wars, uh, mm -hmm. opened. So between 1977, when Star Wars opened, and by the way, Rick Leach and I saw the first show in New York City of Star Wars as well. Total coincidence, but we were there at the matinee. Um, wow. And uh, it was really Star Wars that created this sort of height false expectation that that I think really hurt 1941. You know, I mm -hmm. think if the film had simply opened without all the crazy uh, hype and 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 uh, completely unrealistic expectations that no film could have met. Um, and it also I'm of the generation of it's a mad, 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 mad world, which was a big blockbuster comedy epic that Stanley Kramer, the least funny filmmaker in American films, <laughs> had made when I was what, uh, 1962 or 63. So I was like seven or eight years old when that film. It, it was it was 63 because Mark Evanier always talks about how he saw it right after the Kennedy assassination. Oh, well, there you go. And well, also a great way to lead into a comedy right there, right? Well, I mean, 100%, yeah. <laughs> but um, so, you know, 1941 sort of unfairly in some ways inherited that that mantle of, of mad, 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 mad world uh, failed expectations, if you will. You know, mm. it had all the top comedians from Saturday Night Live. Uh, well, two of them anyway. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they never share a scene together. And and it and and it yeah exactly and and it it fell short even with working with that chemistry on screen. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, you know, R Rick Veach and I got invited to the New York City premiere. Um, with all the celebrities there and everything, we were sort of hustled in the side door. This was something that John Workman had seen too, our beloved art director and and de facto editor. Uh, Julie Simmons Lynch was the editor of note on the graphic novel we did, but it was really John Workman who was our art director and editor. I and see. John <clears throat> made sure we got to go to the premiere. And it, it was a tragic space to be in that night, let me tell you. Oh, wow. You, everybody kind of knew? They could kind of feel it? No. Uh, before the film started, man, the energy was high uh, in that theater. And I'm sure you guys could look up what theater it was in. We were in, you know, the, the Times Square New York City theater that, that premiered the film. And the energy was, was through the roof when we got there. And... As the film unreeled, you could just feel the oxygen like just suck out of the room because, um, you know, it did, it wasn't earning its laughs. And things that had worked in the script, which Rick and I had not only read, but by this point had memorized, mm -hmm. uh, just were thudding on the screen. They just weren't, it wasn't working. The chemistry wasn't there up on the screen. And the, um, the artifice of the special effects and the lavish budget um, was as much a problem as anything. And looking back, I mean, part of what made Animal House work so well is, man, that was a mean, stripped-to-the-bone, low-budget movie. Yeah. And they worked with what they had. And with 1941, the sky was the limit. Um, and I think that was one of the problems. I think that certain genres, comedy and horror movies among them, thrive on desperation 
<laughs> yeah. And some of the best uh, comedies of all time and some of the best horror films of all time are the, are the things that were made with, you know, uh, popsicle sticks, spit, and bubble gum, and a wing and a prayer. And uh, the larger, well-heeled uh, vehicles in those genres, um, they don't always fall short, but, you know, it, it's almost as if 1941 was too opulent for its own good. And it did not play well that night with the premier audience. Um, it got real quiet in that theater. And there, I do not recall any applause at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not not even some polite applause. I Just... I could be wrong. I don't remember it. I mean, we were looking at each other like, oh my. Rick and I were looking at each other like, oh my god, this is not going to be the blockbuster of our career. Right. Um, you know, within two or three months, we were seeing our work on remainder tables in <laughs> in bookstores. You know, right. so, <laughs> um, and I seem to recall John Workman telling us that it was selling great before the movie came out, and then once the movie came out, you know, yeah, we, we came down like Belushi's plane. <laughs> and um, like as sort of a contrast, I know, like a couple years before Marvel Comics. They were lucky enough to adapt Star Wars in a comic book form, and that thing was reprinted in so many formats. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is, part of it is they got it out before the movie, and they right. caught the wave of the movie. Yes, a Alien: The Illustrated Story was a best-selling graphic novel in part because it was in bookstores before the film. In fact, there was no publicity material that showed what the alien looked like. And part of what propelled the interest and the sales on the graphic novel is that's as close as anyone could get to what might be in the movie. Mm. And with 1941, uh, and we were distributed into bookstores by Simon & Schuster, uh, Pocket Books, their Pocket Books division. Um, and, that, and this graphic novel was everywhere. And um, uh, John Workman told us the sales were really brisk before the film opened. And part mm -hmm. of it, I think, was the, the graphic novel was playing to the expectations. And it made it look, you know, we tried to make it a fun read, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we went overboard, if anything. I mean, famously, I'm sure you've heard about, and if you haven't seen it, we'll send it to you uh, as a JPEG, the, the letter that was mailed to the heavy metal offices by Steven Spielberg after he saw the book. I he, actually have the, the letter here. And he did not approve. Let's put it that way. I could, I could read it if you'd like, if you don't oh, mind hearing up, it. It's up to you. It's your show, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, do you have the letter up or no? I don't have it up right now. Okay. Well, I, I've got it up and I can, I can read it. So they, the, this letter is from Steven Spielberg. It's sent to uh, Julie Simons, the editor um, and, it, and it reads, Dear Julie, I have had a chance to further examine the 1941 heavy metal book and have found many aspects of the book disturbing. I feel I was misled by the black and white proofs sent to me prior to this publication. The presentation in living color does not represent the intentions of myself, the writers, or anyone connected with 1941. All of us find the artwork and content to be a savage representation of an otherwise light comedy about those times. Beyond that, it is off-putting, disgusting, and terribly racist. Heavy Metal has portrayed our film as a bestial, cannibalistic, Hieronymus Bosch nightmare. 
There is nothing wrong with bestiality, cannibalism, or Rodimus Bosch when it accurately reflects the nature of the subject matter. On the sweeter side, we take our hats off to your two artists. We all seem to agree on one thing. They are ruthlessly talented, though demented. I am recommending them to Francis Ford Coppola, whose apocalypse uh, now, he leaves off the now, is more in keeping with their vision of a world gone mad. But since this since at this late date, there is not much any of us can do, I'm looking forward to a special heavy metal edition on Benji's Revenge. Regards, Steven Spielberg. Okay. it's a lot of good stuff in there. Oh, so. yeah. We, we were very proud to get that letter, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, in a way, it, it we thought in reading the screenplay that the film mm-hmm. was a savage parody of American wartime hysteria. And that's that was our lead, you know? That's mm-hmm. what we were riffing off of. And um, I completely get Spielberg's reaction. Right. I completely get it, you know? But at the same time, it says to me, gee, did he understand the screenplay he was working <laughs> from? Um, I don't know. Uh, Spielberg has directed some very, you know, funny films, very funny sequences in films. He clearly has a master's touch. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, the kind of um, parody that was in that uh, Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, John Milius screenplay was mm-hmm. pretty over the top. Right. And, and that's the direction we chose to go. Uh, I don't know where... Who told us this or when? I think it may have been John Workman. That apparently our graphic novel did very well in Japan. (laughs) Um, And uh, um, that said to us that uh, the manga audience got exactly what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, But I don't know. You know, that's anecdotal coming from me in, in... and hearsay coming from me. Uh, I know that throughout the decades, Rick and I have heard from a lot of fans of the graphic novel, and they got it. They got it from, even from childhood. They got what we were doing. Mm-hmm. But I guess Steven Spielberg did not. He saw it as yeah. racist rather than um, a savage satire of xenophobia, xenophobia and, and racism associated with wartime propaganda. I don't know how we could have made it any more obvious, but oh well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but he, he did write, I mean, I'm assuming this introduction at the beginning of the, the graphic novel is yeah, yeah. by Spielberg? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was drawn by Erwin Hazen, one of our right. one of our instructors at the Cubert School, by the way. One of mine, too. Yeah. Uh, there you go. And I just think that, I, you know, Erwin hadn't seen what we'd done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick, Rick and I got a pretty ghastly reaction from our Cubert School instructors when they saw the book. Um, Leah Elias, one of my favorite instructors at the Cubert School, sort of harumphed and said, well, you can call it a graphic novel. I call it a glorified paste-up job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ow, you know? Burn. But, Ouch. But we knew, you know, as I said to you earlier, part of why we embraced the whole collage approach was we had no time. Um, yeah. I also have to add, and this is in ongoing young Catholic boy besets apology to his older 
sometimes mentor like beloved friend Rick Beach, uh, I was a terrible partner to work with when we were working on this book, right? Um, I'm slow. Rick has mm -hmm. never missed a deadline. I have rarely made a deadline, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and it was a real headache for Rick to like soldier me through the process of getting this book done on time. We did it and we did get it done and we stayed friends coming out the other end of it, but it, well, there, there were go. some really nightmarish weeks. Um, what can I say? I was a 24-year-old who had just moved back to Vermont, my home state, after over three years in New Jersey, which, you know, uh, was not a hospitable environment in a lot of ways um, for, for a Vermont lad. Um, I rented a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, Rick was renting a two-room cabin. We both did not have running water or bathrooms. Rick had a glorious outhouse behind his cabin. I, living in a brick schoolhouse from the uh, 1860s, actually had a four-hole outhouse extension <laughs> on oh mine. I had no electricity when I moved into the place. I drew with a my drawing lamp connected to a car battery until <laughs> the juice would run out. And then in the morning, I would hook up the car battery to my car, recharge it, <laughs> um, I mean, it was, uh, and, and I think it's okay. I think, uh, you know, any legal repercussions have run their course by now. So I can also tell you this. Um, I also discovered one morning that the cow pies on the pasture behind the brick schoolhouse where I lived in Grafton were sprouting psilocybin mushrooms one morning. <laughs> so instead of being at my schoolhouse when Rick Beach was bicycling over to pick up pages and drop off pages. I was out in the woods happily tripping in Vermont, my home state. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and, you know, that kind of delirium certainly made its way onto the pages, as you can all see. Um, but it did not make me the reliable, steadfast freelancing partner that Rick Beach needed, as we were also not hearing from our scriptwriter. <laughs> <laughs> on the project, and Rick, being the older, wiser member of the team, had to shoulder a lot of responsibilities um, unfairly. And I hereby once again apologize to my good friend Rick Beach for whatever I put him through back then. Um, I will also share a story with you. My landlord, um, I was renting this uh, wonderful brick schoolhouse. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a dream. Oh, and it's still there. Um, uh, my wife and I drove by there uh, last fall. Uh, I got electricity installed before I was done <laughs> that summer. Um, and now there's someone living there uh, who have really fixed up the place. So I'm hoping it has running water at this point in time. I don't know. Um, but uh, my landlord were uh, an old... Uh, couple named Iva and Theron Fisher. And Iva was the wife and Theron was the husband. And these were really, truly native Vermonters, the thick Vermont accent and everything. And they had a wonderful dog named Banjo. Uh, he was a husky mix and he was a great dog. And Banjo, part of his daily ritual was to run over and pay me a visit every single day. He would come over and scratch it by the front door of the cabin, and I would let him in. And uh, and Banjo was a great dog, just a sweetheart. 
So Rick and I, we're getting ready to, as I recall, we're going to take a bus ride from Bellows Falls, Vermont, to New York City to deliver the last pages. I don't remember either of us having a car, um, and Rick can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but we were we were getting everything ready, and we had the last, you know, pages, um, and we are... Our typical thing to do when we thought we were done with a section of the pages is we would lay them all out on the floor of either Rick's cabin or my cabin, and we would, you know, smoke a bowl. We would just kind of <laughs> meditate on the work and see if we'd missed anything and see if there were any touch-ups we had to do or see, you know, were we missing any word balloons? Were there any typos? Rick was lettering on the on the fly as we were doing these pages. Um, so, you know, I was kind of the proofreader um, on the lettering, uh, just, you know, and, and also to see, did we have any better idea to, to add to a particular panel or page before we, mm -hmm. we, we were going to... Is there somewhere else we can stick Mr. Peanut? Well, he was dead by this point in time. Oh, good okay. point. Good point. Right. <laughs> exactly that. Um, so we are in my, my uh, brick schoolhouse and we've laid them out on the floor and this is late summer. It was a very beautiful day. Um, and uh, we didn't close the door. We had the door open. It was that nice uh, a summer day or early fall day. Um, now these pages were done with uh, watercolors, water soluble color pencils, uh, Dr. Martin dyes, uh, iridescent dyes, which are also sensitive to water or moisture. Right. And as we're looking at the pages and meditating on them and go and sort of congratulating ourselves, we we got it done. These are the last pages. Who comes running in the open door? But Banjo, the dog. And Banjo, before coming into the house, had just run through the brook outside the door. So he comes running in and happily shakes off all the water on his fur. <laughs> and Rick and I scream in unison, no! <laughs> As we watch drops of water hit our, we thought they were finished pages and begin to kind of bleed into the colored pencils and the watercolors. Oh, and no. And poor Banjo. Like, Banjo, usually I'm happy to see him. Why are these human beings screaming at me, right? <laughs> so he, like, decides, well, I better run over to Steve and let him know I love him. And so he steps on the pages and making his way over to me. We hustled him out of the schoolhouse and we then had a full uh, afternoon of work ahead of us fixing our finished pages, <laughs> um, and uh, it was it was not anything we would have wished on ourselves, but it is a fond memory when I look back now. <laughs> uh, and poor Banjo, I did make it up to Banjo the next day. I made sure I had okay. dog, you know dog treats there and everything the next time I was home, but. Uh, uh, it was stupid of us, really. It was stupid of us. I, I read a, a comics uh, journal interview with Rick, and he said that after that happened, you looked at some of the pages, and you realized that they were so chaotic. It didn't. The, the water droplets didn't even make much of a difference. And, yeah, I mean, we, we, we didn't have to. We did doctor them up. I do remember both Rick and I. I had a, a you know a fold out bed couch, and we were using that. And I had one drawing board. 
that I still have up in my studio, the same board. And we, we did have to go through them pretty carefully. But yeah, it wasn't as bad as we first had feared. <laughs> um, and it was the end of the book. So, right. um, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that was something. In a, in a weird way, it was the f single funniest thing that happened to us as we were working on the project. Um, I would kind of bookend the comedy of our lives with the Columbia University suit, uh, the Columbia Studio Universal Studio suit, thinking we could sit down for an hour and draw everything we needed <laughs> to work for the next three months on a full color painted graphic novel. And at the other end of the spectrum, Banjo running in the door, shaking off. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that kind of framed it all. So it sounds like things went really smoothly. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have somewhere in my file drawers, I hope. I don't think I ever got rid of it. There was one afternoon when Rick came by. I was supposed to be there to swap pages. And I was out for a walk in the woods. And when I came back, there was a note on my door, <laughs> a drawing Rick did where he has a flat iron in one hand and he's holding me up against the door with the other hand and he's smashing my face with the flat iron. And it said, <laughs> you better get another partner, Bissette. <laughs> so yeah, tensions got high at some points in time, but we did put it all into the book. And when I go back and look at the book as I did this afternoon, I mean, we're both there on every page. No two ways yeah. about it. And Rick and I are fully engage firing on all cylinders throughout the whole thing so yeah i mean i i look at it and i can see like a particular face or a particular figure i'm like oh well that's steve that's rick i can i can see your individual styles peeking through well sometimes you can and sometimes you'd be surprised what's me and what's rick and yeah. um uh, Rick and I had such, uh, we, you know, we had both been trained um, under Joe Kubert. Um, and with Joe, we had learned all the kinetics and design elements of, you know, classic American war comics, Sergeant Rock, our army at war and all that stuff. And we poured it all into this. Um, Joe never really gave us an opinion of what he thought of <laughs> <laughs> 1941. Um, I, I, I know he was happy for us, but I honestly could not tell you what Joe himself would have thought of this. Um, but in a way, we didn't give a shit. We just went to town and we made this the funniest comic we could make it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's tough for me to see Joe going for this in a, in a big way. Because, um, I mean, you get out there. Like, you, you actually have the Treat Williams character... Uh, I think it was he was named Stretch. He yep. actually is, he he like morphs into like a werewolf over the course of the book. Well, let's be clear, okay? 1979 American pop culture. Yeah. Uh, th throughout 1941, the movie, a running joke is that she might get raped by Treat Williams' character. I mean, that right. is a running joke in the film. He is presented as a dangerous. Uh, uncontrollable hedonist. It is a constant threat of rape that drives that. Now, yeah. Rick, Rick and I were sensitive to that in that, okay, well, if that's where this story goes, then let's make it, he is Mr. Hyde. He is a monster. Um, just as we played up his phobia about eggs, in fact, those uh -huh. are actual egg, egg shell, those are real 
organic eggshells pasted down on some of those pages, by the way. Wow. <laughs> we, we took the collage aesthetic to the ultimate. Um, but, you know, here is a comedy. And judging by Steven Spielberg's letter, he took offense at how we depicted that. But in that film, you watch 1941 today, and that is supposed to be a source of, of tension and comedy to the audience. And it does not play well in the year 2021, right? No. Just no. as the you know, World War II xenophobia and racism uh, was played the way it was played in the film. I mean, as soon as you cast Christopher Lee as a German U-boat commander, well, there we are, right? Dracula. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Mafuni played his role with great dignity, but he was playing against the material that he was given. And that's part of why, in many ways, he gives one of the more interesting performances in that film. Um, but there's a lot of things. I, I want to go back to what I said at the top of, of, of this answer to you. American pop culture in the 1970s, when 1941 was made, we were still in an era where um, Caucasian actors like Peter Sellers and Joel Gray, the MC from Cabaret, would appear in feature films with fake Asian makeup on. And yeah. Peter Sellers was presented as Fu Manchu. And Joel Gray was supposed to be the mis- mysterious Zen master who you know, was, uh, was, um, uh, training, uh, the Punisher. Remo Williams. Uh, Remo Williams in, in the film, yeah. Remo Williams. Um, you know, that was ridiculous to us, to Rick Veach and I, I mean, that those aspects of our pop culture were so transparently ridiculous, absurd, and, um, and hateful in their way that mm-hmm. we felt like, well, it makes sense then to riff on that because it's everywhere. So let's mock it. Let's call it. Let's call it out. Right. Um, Clearly, Spielberg didn't get it when we decided, Okay, so let's make all the Japanese submarine soldiers look exactly like those Bugs Bunny Warner Brother cartoons from 1942. He didn't get it. Um, Our readers got it. I mean, we've had people tell us now for decades that they got it. Um, And here we are at a time in America where because of the pandemic, uh, we've got an entire political party demonizing Asian Americans. um, And we're right back to where we were in many ways in World War II um, with certain authoritarian figures in our culture playing those cards. And God damn it, we got to call them out. And if you're a cartoonist and you're working on a book like 1941, well, that may be the only vehicle you ever get to call that out. And so we went to town with it. Um, you know, we were also embracing iconography of the war films of that era. I mean, you know, again, I repeat, Rick Veach being older than I, he grew up throughout the 50s and 60s. I grew up in a military family. My dad took me to every war movie that played in theaters. So mm. I was at age 12 seeing The Dirty Dozen, you know, on the big screen. and. You talk about caricatures <laughs> of, of the Axis powers. That was still going strong in American pop culture. And 1941 was an extension of that as well. Okay. Um, so we riffed on that too. In fact, the entire wraparound cover on 1941 
we were using the color scheme and certain layout aspects of the amazing movie poster artist, Frank McCarthy. Oh, I love his stuff. Well, take a look at his poster art for the John Frankenheimer film, The Train, the one starring Burt Lancaster. Okay. And that's where we got our color scheme and our basic layout from, was that. I'm a huge Frank McCarthy fan, and I was the one that pulled out in one of my movie books. I showed Rick that poster and said, okay, we got to work off of this. Because those colors and those design, those compositional schemes were part of the iconography of how my generation during the Vietnam War was being sold war as a commodity using World War II as the vehicle that was safe to market. Oh, wow. And we were riffing on that. 1941, we were riffing on that. This was our shot at all that cultural and pop cultural baggage. And we, we went for it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I honestly do think the comics adaptation is more successful creatively than the movie. And uh, yeah, it's 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 something to behold just because it's so out there and it's so over the top, intentionally so. Well, I, you guys can decide that. I look at it and I see three to four months of my life back in 1979. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I'm glad it's still with us. I'm glad people are still digging it. I understand it's still available uh, from the heavy metal mail order, which shows you how many copies they overprinted that they still <laughs> have is. warehouse copies for sale. <laughs> if, if you go to heavymetal.com, they are still offering it for sale for a mere $8. And uh, uh, Steve, uh, you told me before, we started recording that Rick Veach still has original pages for sale. Yes. Yeah. Rick Veach is still selling original art from the graphic novel. And if you're interested in picking any up, they are not cheap. <laughs> it is original <laughs> art from uh, a one. And it's full color original art and full color original art. Uh, I will say this. Um, my use of collage prior to our taking this on meant that we used durable Elmer's glue to paste down our collage elements. So this is not uh, a painted and collage comic where rubber cement is discoloring the pages and things are falling off. These things were glued down and put under weights for overnight on every single page. So that stuff will probably outlive the paper itself. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I, I had no idea that Elmer's glue uh, lasted that long. Oh, well, back then it did. I don't know about the 2021 formula of Elmer's glue. If it's anything like the Higgins Black Magic ink that we try to use these days, it probably won't last as long. But the yeah, we used very durable permanent glue to put this stuff down. Um, and uh, Rick still has pages available. Um, yeah. You've got the uh, the website there, correct? Yeah, it's uh, rickveach.com. I'm going to spell that. That's R-I-C-K-V-E-I-T-C-H.com. And I've also noticed that he's got uh, signed copies of the graphic novel available on his site for uh, $12.95. So there for just uh, $4.95 are... more, you can get it signed by one of the artists. Or by both. Or by both. <laughs> yeah. that far from uh, there you go. Yeah, and, splurge. Uh, and Rick is also on the SNL nerd sent you. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, um, we'll wrap this up in a minute, but when we, when you went to the premiere in New York, did you get to meet or interact with anybody? No, we were, we were cartoonists. I mean, okay. you know, 
The, so the so word, they had you sequestered away. Understand that the word graphic novel, even though it was it was coined, you know, in the late '60s, early '70s, by a couple of of uh, projects, and Will Eisner really, for the marketplace, ratified the term graphic novel in 1978 uh, with a contract with God. This right. was not called a graphic novel. This was 1941, the illustrated story. Even though Heavy Metal was selling these beautiful uh, graphic novels into bookstores, including from their Heavy Metal pages, you know, the Mobius, the Jean Giraud graphic novels and so on, the term graphic novel hadn't caught on yet. It wasn't used yet. We were still comic book artists at best, and we were bottom of the food chain. It was kind of a miracle that John Workman even got us passes to be there at the premiere. Um, and I suspect that had more to do with the cachet that National Lampoon still had uh, rather than any cachet heavy metal had at that point in time with the studios. Um, so, no, we didn't get to meet anybody. We get to see them. You know, oh, my gosh, there's John Belushi. There's, you know, mm -hmm. there's Gilda Radner. There, you know, there's some of the Saturday Night Live uh, crowd were there at the premiere and and Rick and I were as starstruck as a couple Vermonters could possibly be but we didn't nobody introduced us to anybody um, oh that's too bad hey that's, that's how bad. it goes I have to say you know I, I, in my career I've been involved with a number of projects that either were adapted into or from film we're never invited to premieres. <laughs> we didn't even get invited to the Return of Swamp Thing movie premiere, even though our work was, you know, under the title sequence of that film. Um, uh, so, you know, the only time it began to change in the 90s, uh, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman did invite us all to the, uh, the local Massachusetts premiere of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Oh, um, and classy gent uh, that he is, uh, Frank Miller did uh, extend an invitation to me if I wanted to come down to New York City to attend the premiere of 300. Oh, nice. And I did not get to go because at that time a trip to New York wasn't in the cards, but it was incredibly sweet uh, of Frank to extend that premiere. But that's a rarity in this business. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I published, I serialized from hell in Taboo. Um, mm -hmm. Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's From Hell was originally done for the horror comic anthology I edited, published, and co-published Taboo. I didn't get invited to the premiere of From Hell. You know, that's just how it is. Um, it's a generational thing in part, and Rick and I are of the generation before graphic novels really became the coin of the realm. Um, so it's a factor of that. It's something that, um, you know, we, we don't, we don't brood over it. It was just, that's how it was back then. You know, you were a comic yeah. book artist that meant bottom of the packing order. You know, uh, there was not the kind of interest and respect, uh, extended to cartoonists at that time, except in certain quarters of the culture and subculture, including gentlemen like yourselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think they are getting a little better about that. I know that some of the people who worked on certain Marvel characters have been invited to some of the Marvel premieres, which is always nice to see. Uh, Danny O'Neill has told me that he was at uh, premieres of the various Batman movies. Yeah, that's so. great. And I'm really happy that happens. Um, I, uh, you know, the best treatment I've gotten personally has been from independent filmmakers. I, I mm -hmm. became friends back in... Um, 
1999 with uh, Lance Weiler and Stefan Avalos. They were the two gentlemen who made the first di all digital, digitally projected feature film in history, the last broadcast in 1998, mm. the year before the Blair Witch Project, the year before George Lucas and the Phantom Menace claimed to be the first digital feature digitally projected. And Lance and Stefan have been sweethearts. Whenever they've done an edition on DVD and now on Blu-ray of the last broadcast, I get a phone call from them and they ask if I can do some artwork for the project. So well, that's great. You know, independent filmmakers um, can be very caring and very um, thoughtful about those things. Uh, it has not been my experience that studios or those associated with studio films extend the same courtesies. Um, and that includes stuff with television shows. You know, we, I only saw the Swamp Thing TV show because friends who had the DC channel were illegally dubbing it for me and sending me discs. <laughs> so I don't think I'm talking too far out of shop to, to reveal that, but that's just how it is. That's the nature yeah. of the media environment. And it's also the nature of the generation that Rick Beach and I are part of. Um, it is better for the current generation. One of my um, former students, an alumni of the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction is Chuck Forsman. And when Channel 4 adapted The End of the Fucking World into the miniseries that's now available on Netflix, um, they flew Chuck um, and his partner, Melissa uh, Mendes, out to England, not once, but a number of times. Um, including for one of the awards shows. So it's very gratifying to me to see that the next generation of cartoonists and graphic novelists are getting treated much better than we were back in 1979. But again, I stress, John Workman, our art director and editor on the project, made sure we did get into the premiere. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I, but I, I feel like it should also be said that it is better for the current generation in part because of the battles that people like you and, and Rick Veach fought. Well, I mean, thank, thanks for saying so. And yes, I think that's partially true. Yeah. In one way, it's not true because I have seen some of the worst contracts of my life over the last five years. You know, hmm. the current corporate environment is very much trying to reclaim the kind of ground that they conceded for a time during the 1990s. Uh, but uh, for those creators who are smart enough to um, protect their work, maintain their rights, uh, maintain their ownership of that which they fully create, um, the situation is better for them. But you need lawyers, you need legal representation. We were of a generation where that wasn't even permitted. You know, If we had said mm -hmm. we'd had an agent or a lawyer, we would not have gotten work in the 1970s. Wow. That's it. Yeah. There was one agent working in the entire comic field in the 1970s. Mike Friedrich? Uh, Mike Friedrich. He was the one and only and first. That began to change in the 1980s, particularly in the late 80s. And once you have Jeanette Kahn as publisher at DC beginning to employ people from the book and magazine industry, that is when things really began to change. And I'm happy to say in the context of this conversation and your show, um, in, it was really Heavy Metal and National Lampoon that initiated a lot of those changes. Heavy Metal was the first New York City-based comic publisher that offered, right out of the gate, 
a very simple creator-owned ownership contract. And I know for a fact because I signed them. They're in my files. The first heavy metal sales I made in 1977, it was a page and a half contract. And it said, I owned my work absolutely. They were buying one-time publishing rights. And they asked for an option for a five-year period if they wanted to reprint it as part of a calendar or a reprint book. And that was innovative in 1977. That was unprecedented in the New York mainstream comic industry. It was standard for the underground comics industry, such as it was back in the 60s and 70s. Um, but that had, you know, had its run. Uh, and it was really National Lampoon and, uh, for me, Heavy Metal that initiated that new era of a mainstream publisher acknowledging you owned your work. Yeah. yeah so anyway, we didn't want to go there. That's not funny. No, well, hey, no. Hey, but it's important. It's important. Absolutely. But it's not funny. It's not Mr. Peanut. <laughs> hey, come on. What is Mr. Peanut, though, really? What is I mean, Mr. Peanut? It's not Banjo shaking off Brookwater on all our <laughs> No, no. Funny. But, but you know what? I, I bet there's a better than even chance that, like, Belushi at least saw your stuff. Because I know that Belushi was a comic fan. He's, he visited the Marvel offices when they did the... Uh, Marvel team-up issue where Spider-Man meets the cast of Saturday Night Live. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So I can hope. I can always hope. You know, part of me hopes that Dan Aykroyd approves of our likeness of Dan Aykroyd on the page where his character (laughs) is introduced. (laughs) Well, I mean, um, uh, Steve, why don't you tell uh, folks more about what you're up to now? I mean, I know that you're retired from teaching, but you're you're keeping very busy, it sounds like. You were telling us about all these book projects before we started recording. Well, I've been primarily, I mean, I, I write and draw, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I've primarily been doing a lot of writing. Um, I've, uh, uh, I've completed a number of books that came out over the past year, year and a half. Um, I did an entire book on David Cronenberg's The Brood, his 1979 horror film, one of my, one of my all-time favorite films as a viewer. Um, and that was a book for Midnight Movie Monographs, um, published by Electric Dreamhouse. I contributed um, to a work of fiction I'm really proud of. Uh, I was invited by four horror novelists to uh, join them in a uh, project in which we conjectured a, an imaginary 1960s horror film studio that doesn't exist and never did exist. Um, and that book is called Studio of Screams. Um, and the co-authors are Stephen Volk, Mark Morris, Tim Levin, and Christopher Golden. And they invited me in on it. And I ended up writing the framing device and the interstitial pieces. Think of it as um, our model was those old uh, amicus uh, horror films like Tales from the Crypt and Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, where you'd have four or five stories. And there'd be oh, a wraparound, right. you know, usually with Peter Cushing or Burgess Meredith, or right, somebody right. who. And so my job was to to write the, you know, the Peter Cushing wraparound material, <laughs> um, <laughs> and that came out last year from P.S. Publications, a British publisher. Um, I also have a book series I've been working on called Cryptid Cinema. There's a genre of uh, 
monster films that have never been looked at as what they are. Um, and uh, these are films that involve cryptids, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster. But in the context of fiction films, that would also include King Kong, the creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, if it's if it's a film that's conjecturing in the real world, there's this monster no one has identified. That is a cryptid movie. And the first book came out in 2017. I just turned in a new manuscript to my book designer, uh, the great Tim Paxton, who's designing the book. And he designed the first book, Cryptid Cinema. And that'll be out later this year. Um, and I'm also working on a number, number of other projects, including uh, I was a contributor to a very strange uh, project involving the Golem. And I, I can't give away too much about that because they haven't announced it as yet. But I was one of a number of artists that contributed pages to that. And I'm about to start work on a graphic novel project that I'm really excited about that I got invited to be part of um, the original uh uh, co-creators uh, reached out to me a couple of summers ago and asked if I wanted to play in their uh, narrative playpen. And we kicked around um, uh, the story, and it looks like we're going to get to do it. Um, and that'll be a, a, like a two-year project. So that's a little ways down the road. And again, I don't mean to be so vague or cagey, but until they announce it, um, I, I, I can only hint at what it might be. I will no. tell you, it's a horror graphic novel. I, hey, I, I I totally get it. NDAs are a thing. There you go. And uh, or as my friend Mike Dobbs calls it, vague booking. <laughs> yeah, I've seen. And that. I'll also mention that you know all the work that John Toddleben, Rick Veach, and myself did with Alan Moore and uh, editor the late great Len Wein, and the yeah. not late, still very much with us, Karen Berger. The work we did on Saga of the Swamp Thing has been repackaged. It's back in print. It's out there in some really handsome editions. And um, that's all work that Rick and I, you know, tackled uh, after 1941, the illustrated story. So a lot of what we learned doing 1941 ended up going into our work on Swamp Thing, um, yeah. in including a lot of that crazy energy <laughs> that, that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I, I like Steve. I've told you this story before, like the first time we talked. But I actually was a subscriber to Swamp Thing right after you got you started on the book, and just like a couple issues before Alan Moore started. Oh, um, you were right there at the cusp then. Yeah, well, well because I was yeah. one of the the one hundred second place winners in the Great Swamp Thing movie contest. Congratulations! <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm sorry so I, I didn't congratulate you before. I no, no, you me. did. You did oh, good. Okay. congratulate well, me before. You were just okay. as enthusiastic, and I get just as much of a kick out of it. Uh, and but I won a year subscription to Swamp Thing, so I I got in right at the the ground floor of well, that, and I stupidly did not renew the subscription with a oh, year. Was up, so you oh. missed all our, Oh, you missed a really great <laughs> So I so I'm I'm never going to own the, the first appearance of John. <laughs> John Constantine. You know, so. I, I should also met. Well, you know, stay in touch with me. Maybe you'll luck into a comment. Oh, hey. well, I'll just lay that out there. Um, so uh, I should also mention uh, two other things. I'm on Facebook, uh, as is yes. Rick Beach, and um, I have been engaged to do a series of online uh, one-hour workshop lectures that'll be starting in September. And um, if people are curious about that, uh, I will be posting about it on Facebook closer to September. Um, and those, I believe, 
are free. I think people will have to sign up for them. It's uh, uh, something being co-sponsored by uh, universities, libraries, and a couple of comic retailers. And that'll be happening over the, the fall and winter months coming up. Oh, and uh, I've also ended up doing, I have this strange tangent in my career now where I'm doing bonus uh, features for Blu-ray editions of very strange movies. Uh, if there are any fans out there of Wisconsin filmmaker Bill Rabane, the man who made the giant spider invasion, uh, I am part of the bonus features of the Arrow Films Blu-ray set, Weird Wisconsin, um, the Bill Rabane um, films. And I also contributed to uh, a Sam Katzman uh, 1950s monster movie set called Cold War Creatures, also from Arrow Films. And that's coming out, I think, next month, uh, July. Uh, no, we're in July. So we're I in July, yeah. Early, early August. Um, and I'm proud to say I'm the one that suggested that title for the box set. They emailed me after I'd done my bonus material. Uh, I, I've got a lecture on there about Sam Katzman's career. He was a movie producer back in the uh, 1950s and early 60s. Um, and uh, uh, they wrote me and said, do you have any ideas for the name of this? And Cold War Creatures is the one that uh, made this score. So, And I guess I'm going to keep doing that kind of thing. I've ended up doing a couple more that I can't mention yet because I haven't announced the, uh, uh, the products as yet. But um, uh, if you want to see me and hear me blather about really fucked up movies I love, keep your eye on the Blu-ray uh, projects that are coming out from a variety of, of outfits. Well, I mean, look, if you if you retirement, that's my retirement year. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) You are certainly keeping busy. No one is going to accuse you of letting grass grow under your feet, man. And I mean, if you've made it this far into the podcast, you know that Steve's got tons of knowledge that he can drop on you. So, yeah, sign up for these workshops. I'm I'm going to sign up for for those workshops, especially if they're free. So yeah, I'm pretty sure they are. If I'm wrong about that, I know it's a cursory fee, if any. But it's the kind of thing I believe where you're going to have to register online with the organization, and um, uh, we're doing a whole bunch of them. So okay. So is is the best place for people to check you out on Facebook, or do you have a, like a website of your own? I'm on Facebook. Out? I kept my old blog, srbeset.com. There is a blog there, but it's archived. I'm not. I'm not there. I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, I'm in my 60s. I have an Instagram account. I have a Twitter account, but Facebook is is uh, where uh, I go to roost as an old vulture. So that's where find, that's find where it's there. at for you. Find me there. Okay, and Rick Veach is also on there. You can also check him out at rickveach.com, and you can uh, buy a signed edition of the uh, 1941, the illustrated story. And yeah, check it out. Again, I'm saying it's a lot more entertaining than the movie. Oh, absolutely. I like yeah. the movie. I have to say, whatever I said earlier, it is a film I have a soft spot in my skull for. So, um, Well, there, there you go. go. Yeah. There you go. I mean, but there, I also really... like it's a mad, 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 mad world now, too. So yes. maybe it's maybe it's senility kicking in. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, thank you so much for doing this 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 has been great this has been john darren thank you so much for having me i really i i it's been fun i hope it's been fun for you all and and i appreciate it thank no you. thanks Absolutely. for thanks for being on thank you so much and rick yeah. thanks you all i'm here uh, at rick's behest as well he said steve you take it so here we go <laughs> okay well yeah you you did him proud i would say so 
All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for this bonus episode of the SNL Nerds. We will be back uh, on next Monday with, uh, what are we doing, Darren? Blades of Glory? We're doing Blades of Glory. We're doing Blades of Glory with Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler. Uh, So we will see you then. But until then, nerds out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.